This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, results and fallout from Joe Biden's first foreign trip as U.S. president. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. From the G7 and NATO summits to the much-anticipated meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin, President Joe Biden attempted to repair the transatlantic alliance and reestablish boundaries with Moscow. They were blurred under former President Donald Trump, who infamously took Vladimir Putin's word over the assessment of the U.S. intelligence community regarding Moscow's interference in the U.S. elections in 2016. While the United States and its fellow G7 members, the U.K., France, Germany, Canada, Italy, and Japan, renewed ties, frayed under the previous administration, and discussed a variety of issues, the four C's dominated the agenda, COVID, China, climate, and cybersecurity. Where do the Allies see eye to eye, and where might there be some cracks in the alliance? The summit between Russian President Vladimir Putin and President Joe Biden did not yield much tangible policy progress. Both leaders hope that it will pave the way for greater cooperation in the future, particularly with regard to arms control and cybersecurity. Both leaders agreed to begin a strategic stability dialogue to lay the groundwork for arms control measures. As a warning to the Kremlin, President Biden presented President Putin with a list of critical infrastructure sites that he said should be off limits to cyber attacks. Putin denied the Kremlin's involvement in cyber attacks and even refused to utter the name of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, whom President Putin characterizes as a terrorist. At the end of the day, President Biden says that the U.S.-Russian relationship is not about trust, but about self-interest and verification of self-interest. Well, joining us to analyze the significance and impact of U.S transatlantic relations in the wake of President Biden's summits are two distinguished experts. Ian Lesser is vice president at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. He also serves as executive director of the Brussels office of GMF and leads GMF's work on the Mediterranean, Turkey and the wider Atlantic. And Andrea Kendall-Taylor, she is senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, and that's a public policy group based in Washington, and Ian Lesser joins us from Brussels. Ian, welcome to the program. Very good to be with you, Carol. Indeed, it's been a long time. Uh, we enjoyed having you in Washington, and, and we're glad to have you at your new base in Brussels. And of course, we're delighted to welcome back Andrea Kendall-Taylor with CNAS. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Ian, let me begin with you over there in Brussels. Let's do this chronologically. First to the G7, the EU meetings uh, with President Biden. There certainly was a contrast with former President Trump in tone and atmospherics. We have President Biden talking about America is back. What were your main takeaways from those meetings? Well, I think it was very dramatic to see the difference in style. You know, it's style, okay, but uh, style really does matter in the end. And especially, you know, sitting here in Brussels, it's very clear that there's a lot of optimism about dealing with this administration. It's not that all the issues will be resolved. There are still some big ones to deal with. 
But there is a degree of predictability and also a familiarity with foreign policy that Europe gets with Biden and his closest uh, advisors and cabinet members that was lacking, I think, in the Trump years. And so, you know, stylistically, there's an enormous difference. On the substance, the allies were mostly on the same page when it came to things like climate and health and economic recovery, because the G7 is, is largely about things like that, but also about Russia. And I think visible from the G7, but also then even more at NATO and USE. EU summit, an increasing focus on China. No question about that. We're going to get into NATO in a few minutes. So let me turn over to Andrea Kendall-Taylor for your take on the G7 summit. Biden, who is no stranger, of course, to these European leaders when he was vice president and senator and so forth, discussed the significance of his visit. Well, I think you have both made such excellent points. And the key takeaway really is that America is back. And I think he did exactly what he came to do. Um, All of the leaders kind of presumably welcomed President Biden with open arms Everyone talked about how wonderful it is to have the restoration of U.S. leadership, moral authority. And so I think that was really the big takeaway. And all of that choreography in the building up to the Putin summit, which I know we are going to get to, I think was really significant. And so in that sense, President Biden was able to go into the Putin summit being able to demonstrate that he really has rallied the alliances Of course, there are some areas of disagreement. China may be one, and we can talk about that. But broadly speaking, I think it was a success. There were some deliverables on climate and COVID and even kind of the agreement on the Technology Council. So a willingness, I think, through all of this to recognize that we might not be in lockstep on every issue, but there was definitely a willingness to kind of work through all of these points of tension you know, in the European summits, working through some of the trade tensions. And so by the time, you know, President Biden gets to the Putin summit, he was able to walk into that room, I think, with the full support of allies behind him. And that is a significant thing. Back to you, Ian Lesser. Let's move on to the NATO summit. It's hard to believe that just uttering support for Article 5 of NATO, which President Biden did, makes news. But I guess after four years of former President Donald Trump, who denigrated NATO, evidently it does. Talk about the significance of that, the restoration of that relationship, and any other deliverables you'd like to enumerate. Well, Carol, the NATO piece of this was, I think, a great success, actually. And it comes against the background that you described. There was a great concern about Donald Trump. They felt that at best his commitment to the alliance was half-hearted. You know, in fact, you know, the United States has not diminished. In fact, it's increased its security presence in Europe across now three administrations. But you know, there was anxiety nonetheless, because there was a feeling that somehow the United States was retreating from this uh, engagement in European security and become somehow unreliable. And I think this visit, the NATO summit, did a great deal to reassure allies that that was not the case. You know, after all, President Biden is maybe the most foreign policy-minded president since George H.W. Bush. There are a lot of domestic policy distractions, obviously, but this is a turf that he knows very, very well, leaders he knows well, issues he knows well, uh, and he brings with him people who also know the NATO world very, very well. So very reassuring from that point of view. I mean, just a couple of other things, I think, in addition to the Article 5 part of it, which was reassuring. There were also some slightly different messages on burden sharing. President Biden came as all American presidents do, asking Europe to do more and spend more. That's not going to change. But this administration has been, I think, subtly signaling that it's willing to be less orthodox about how you measure that, that it's not just a matter of spending 2% of GDP on defense or 
making certain investment pledges. It's other things that allies bring to the table that aren't often counted in defense budgets. And I think there's more openness to understanding those things. Obviously, there was talk about the disengagement from Afghanistan, which is not just a U.S. issue, but a NATO issue. And then also China. You know, NATO had not said very much about China in past years, certainly in past summits. There was a great deal about China, actually, in this summit. And that was quite striking, far outside the alliance area of responsibility. But, you know, the alliance obviously has a very key stake. Final comment on this. I think President Macron raised this some time ago, the idea that NATO needs to be the place where big strategic issues are debated. It has to be a more political alliance. And I think that part of it was really on display this time. With all the discussion about China, the actually adoption, in the Secretary General's words, of these more political alliance or a rediscovery of the political role of NATO and that kind of thing, it's really very, very obvious. And it seemed to be that there was strong consensus around that. So back to you, uh, Andrea, to talk about the significance of this NATO meeting and not just the fact that President Biden stated what was always considered the obvious, that Article 5 of NATO, which says that an attack on one member is an attack on all members and that he would back that. What else would you point out as significant, whether on China, Afghanistan and so forth? I think the other kind of notable thing and key deliverable coming out of the summit was also the agreement, which we all expected and was kind of pre-announced, the decision to announce a new strategic concept. And so, you know, the last strategic concept was drafted in 2010, and then the world looked entirely different. So the previous strategic concept didn't mention China once. It described Russia in very different terms. And so it really is time for the alliance to come up with this new kind of guiding document for NATO. And I think one of the things that, you know, was so remarkable related to the strategic concept is just the sheer breadth of issues that NATO is having to take on. They talked about China. They're talking about resilience and how can NATO member states develop safer and more reliable infrastructure. They're talking about cyber. They're talking about technology and how they can deal with emerging and disruptive technologies. They had to talk about climate and how a climate affects security in Afghanistan. So, I mean, I think it really is remarkable just the number of issues that NATO is having to address. You know, it's looking to adapt and evolve in response to its changing threat landscape. And that really is remarkable. The one thing on the China, which is one issue where there still does seem to be a little um, more disagreement within the alliance. Of course, they agreed to talk about China. They did talk about China. But after the summit, both Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel made comments kind of suggesting that they weren't fully behind this idea of elevating China the way that it has been within the NATO alliance. And I think that was remarkable. In many ways, it kind of undercut the message. And it does reflect, even though the ground is converging on China and a recognition that NATO needs to do more to think about the challenges that China poses, I still think there is a tension for NATO member states that they're going to have to grapple, much like the United States does, with how to think about and posture themselves when you do have two primary adversaries. For the United States, China has been elevated to by far the number one most important long-term national security challenge. But for NATO, it really is still Russia. And I think they're going to have to work through these kind of competing priorities and right-size the China problem set within the NATO alliance. And so I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch. They agreed that China is an issue, but even after the fact, some of the leader comments, I think, cast doubt about how wholeheartedly that they've embraced that 
elevation of China within their priorities. No question there seem to have been some cracks on the issue of China. You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are Ian Lesser. He's vice president at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and he's executive director of the Brussels office of GMF where he joins us from, and Andrea Kendall-Taylor. She's Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security here in Washington. And both join us via Microsoft Teams. We're discussing the significance and consequences of U.S. President Joe Biden's recent summits with the G7, NATO, and soon we'll be talking about Russian President Vladimir Putin. And this is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website, at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Here's a shout out to a loyal listener, Mohammed Ahmed from Somalia. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please leave a comment on our Facebook page at Carol Castiel VOA or send an email to encounter at voanews.com. So back to you, Ian Lesser, just quickly before we go on to the Putin-Biden summit. On Afghanistan, isn't that a point of contention also? I think some of the NATO members were a bit miffed that President Biden didn't give them a better heads up with regard to the U.S. plan to withdraw all troops by September 11th and now looking closer to July. Well, there are obviously lots of stakeholders in NATO, and NATO as a whole is a stakeholder in what happens in Afghanistan. Yes, there are some who say that the administration might have consulted more closely with European allies on this. But the truth is, I don't think any of this was a surprise to NATO allies. There were repeated visits by senior administration officials to discuss precisely this. And so I, at the end of the day, I think there was a fair amount of consultation. And by definition, it's going to be a kind of alliance strategy over disengagement. Indeed. And Andrea, do you have anything to add or subtract on the question of Afghanistan? It's not Afghanistan per se, but I think it gets at this idea of Europeans kind of concerned about the lack of consultation coming from Washington. And I think it gets kind of at another fissure or kind of point of tension, the relationship. It wasn't just on Afghanistan, but, you know, the announcement of President Biden to open up the vaccine intellectual property without consulting with allies. We've heard some Eastern European allies concerned about not consulting with them before nailing down the Putin-Biden summit. So I think that there is kind of this broader sentiment, um, even though everyone is so happy to have President Biden back in office, they view him as, you know, a committed transatlanticist. After four years of Trump, I do think that there are continued reservations in Europe about putting all of their eggs in the United States basket. And there is still this you know, desire to build European capabilities to be able to chart a more independent course. And I think that is one of the tensions that we'll have to continue to work through in the coming years. And something that makes me a little bit worried in the sense that kind of if we can't get it right with President Biden here and start kind of nailing down more concrete progress and building that relationship and the trust in the relationship back under President Biden, then it makes me worried about the potential for greater kind of divergence later down the line. So that issue of Afghanistan, which is what we were talking about, I think just reflects this broader unease that still is present in the alliance. Very good. Well, back to you, Ian Lesser, and let's move on to the Biden-Putin summit. Is there any unease among the allies with regard to Vladimir Putin's Russia and Vladimir Putin in particular? How did you see the summit? 
Well, you know, there's a great deal of unease about Russia. You know, the high representative for foreign security policy, Joseph Morel, said that he fully expects the EU relationship with Russia to get worse. And it is very strained. Now, of course, there will be a spectrum of views about these two elements. And this is true for the NATO debate as well. But defense and deterrence on the one hand and dialogue with Russia on the other, almost everyone believes there should be some mix. The question is, in what proportion? And you can find different views on this across the alliance. Many in Central and Eastern Europe and in the Baltic who feel the Russian risk very directly will have one view about this. Others, like the French and the Germans, to some extent, even the Americans have a quite a different view. And I think a lot of that was sort of on display even in the Biden-Putin summit, where there's a kind of inevitable attempt to balance, on the one hand, a kind of values agenda with Russia, which is obviously very, very critical, and also a series of real complaints that we have, together with a, a sense that we really really do need to get back to some more strategic stability in the relationship with Russia. I mean, you could say, ironically, that we had more of that during the Cold War, at least in later days of the Cold War, than we do today. We understood more about what the other side wanted, even if we disagreed. We had a basic agreement about what was stabilizing and what was destabilizing. And today, we don't have a lot of that. We have a lot of risk, not a lot of risk reduction, not a lot of confidence building. And so, you know, I think it was interesting that one of the positive outcomes of this meeting was a commitment to move forward on at least some fronts on arms control. So, yes, I think Biden came to Geneva, you know, with this background of discussions at the G7, at NATO and the US-EU summit, which basically bolstered his position. I don't think you'll find huge disagreements. Uh, he came with a very strong kind of allied perspective to Geneva, and that probably helped the US case significantly. Do you think that helped the US case significantly, Andrea, having consulted with the allies before he went to Geneva that is President Biden? And he certainly had a different tone than his predecessor vis-a-vis Vladimir Putin. I do think with the way that all of the engagements were orchestrated, that he did come into the meeting with President Putin kind of with the strength of the allies at his back. You know, I think the summit kind of went as expected, though. I mean, we all had very low expectations for what they were going to accomplish. And I generally think the summit delivered on those relatively low expectations. I mean, I agree that there was a lot of European, especially among the East European allies, a lot of concern about where the U.S.-Russia relationship was headed going into the summit. We've heard from Eastern European allies concerns that the United States is kind of, quote unquote, sleepwalking into a reset. But I do think that the summit has hopefully allayed some of those worst concerns. I think President Biden went in and did exactly what he had hoped to do. As he articulated it, he went into the summit kind of wanting to have an open line of communication and directly one-on-one to be able to communicate U.S. interests directly. He wanted to articulate to President Putin what the U.S. priorities and values are, including on human rights. And he made that point that with Russia, human rights will always be on the table. And he went in to discuss some possible areas of engagement. It was pretty clear that that list is quite narrow. I know that President Biden was hoping to make some progress on the cyber issue, given all of the ransomware attacks. And we saw in Putin's presser his continuing denial of being involved in those attacks. And so my sense is that they didn't make a significant amount of progress except for what you referenced at the beginning, at least President Biden was able to deliver these 16 types of infrastructure that are now off limits. And my sense is 
that that kind of dialogue will continue under the strategic stability umbrella. What President Biden had said is he wants to establish some rules of the road, and that is a first step in developing some norms in the cyber domain. So I guess all in all, I think it was a very positive summit. It didn't accomplish a huge amount, but it was effective, I think, in putting guardrails on the relationship, especially on that direct line of communication and especially on the arms control and strategic stability front. We'll see where it goes from here. In many ways, I think the ball is now in President Putin's court. It was at the U.S. invitation that the summit happened, which President Putin was, you know, very keen to point out. And so now the ball is in his court to see if he's willing to kind of play ball with the United States in these areas of engagement to cut off some of the most kind of aggressive and malign actions against the United States. And if he doesn't, then my sense is that President Biden is going to recalibrate this mix of confrontation and engagement. But I think if there isn't any real change in the Kremlin's posture, that they'll have to shift more towards the confrontation side of that equation. As we close, Ian Lesser, do you think that Vladimir Putin got the message, so to speak, notwithstanding his constant denials of everything we know he is involved in, whether it's election interference or the cyber attacks by perhaps non-state actors, but which most critics say usually have some connection with the Kremlin? I wouldn't expect very much difference in terms of Russian behavior as a result of this. What is very different, obviously, is that we know what they talked about. There were people in the room. There was transparency to it. And so in terms of setting down markers and signaling, I think it was probably pretty clear. And Perhaps on the cyber front, it did maybe make some progress in terms of laying down, you know, real red lines. And the U.S., of course, has its own capacity to retaliate in that regard. And to make that clear was probably important. But I also think that probably President Putin has a different set of metrics in thinking about a meeting like this. For him, probably it's in part about, you know, just simply displaying the fact that Russia still matters. Because as China looms larger and larger in the American strategic calculus, and as many other things are going on around the world, frankly, if it weren't for the Russian nuclear arsenal, by other measures, Russia wouldn't count for much in many senses geopolitically. That's something that Russians take real offense at. And so having this kind of a high-level meeting with a new American president in a sense, puts Russia back on the map in a way that they would find attractive. But that's the price of having the kind of dialogue that you need to have when you do have two nuclear-armed adversaries. But I think they probably look at it through a rather different lens than we do. Well, certainly they look at it through a different lens, Andrea Kendall-Taylor. But you get the last word. So I think, you know, the summit was a success for President Biden. I also think it was a success for President Putin. He got the meeting with President Biden. It was the first meeting with a U.S. adversary. He got the meeting before Xi Jinping. That in and of itself, I think, is also important for President Putin, who, you know, many people are talking about the potential for Russia's increasingly junior partner status vis-a-vis China, that they are the subservient power. I think it was important for Putin to demonstrate to Xi that it was Putin who got the meeting and that he has these geopolitical alternatives. And this agreement to embark and launch arms control and strategic stability talks, that is in an area that is extremely important for President Putin to sit down as the world's two nuclear powers and have these negotiations and consultations with the United States. So it was a success for President Biden. It was also a success for President Putin. 
And now moving forward, I'm with Ian. I have pretty low hopes about any significant change in President Putin's behavior moving forward. And I would say one of the most interesting parts of the summit was as President Biden was walking off the stage and he got the question from the CNN reporter about whether or not he was confident now that Putin would change his behavior. And that was, a, you know, one of the most animated moments, I would say, of the summit. And, you know, President Biden essentially, you know, recognized just how hard it is to change Putin's calculus. What he was doing there, I think, was setting expectations. I don't think anyone expects President Putin to change his behavior in any real way. And it's one of the reasons why he's talked a lot about confrontation and raising the cost. But at the same time, he's taking very serious resilience and allies. He is increasing America's cyber resilience. He's elevated corruption as a national security issue and taking on that issue of anti-corruption. If we can't change President Putin's behavior, at least we can mitigate the effects. On that note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my terrific guests, Ian Lesser, Executive Director of the Brussels Office of the German Marshall Fund, and Andrea Kendall-Taylor. She's Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.